Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our Safety and Health Magazine webcast today, sponsored by the folks at Alert Media. We're going to let our audience members settle in for just a minute or so, and we'll start the presentation shortly. Thanks to you all for joining us. We're going to let a few more folks settle in and we'll begin the presentation in less than a minute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, 2022 Hurricane Preparedness Checking in Mid-Season, sponsored by Alert Media. My name is Barry Botino, and I'm an associate editor at Safety and Health. Before we get started today, I have a few housekeeping items to share with you all. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, there'll be a Q&A with our speakers. If you have a question, please send it in to us at any time during the event by clicking at the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, typing in your question, and pressing the send button. The Alert Media team will be answering your questions throughout the presentation. After the event, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, that survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is very important to us because it helps us to improve our future webcasts. Finally, this webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. Now I'd like to welcome in Katie Gowen, the senior producer at Alert Media, to take us through today's event. Hello, Katie. Hi, Barry. Thank you so much. And hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here to moderate today's webinar when we're talking about hurricane preparedness. So as I'm sure we all have realized by now, this season has been relatively quiet so far, but September is traditionally the peak of hurricane season. So this is the perfect time for us to check in and you know, see how things are gonna look moving forward. So as Barry said, it is interactive today. Um, so submit a question anytime. And if you already submitted a question with registration, thank you so much for that. That really helps us guide the conversation. And we have worked those into today's presentation. Um, so you should be covered there. And also keep in mind, it doesn't have to be a question. If you have a comment or maybe a scenario or a personal anecdote to share, we welcome those as well. So with that, I am happy to introduce today's speakers. 
First, we have Jason Moreland, and he is the in-house senior meteorologist at Alert Media. Jason graduated from the University of Alabama with a Bachelor of Science in Meteorology, and his focus was industrial meteorology. So he has a decade of professional experience in the private sector, including extensive domestic, international, and offshore forecasting. And throughout his career, he has provided really critical decision support to a wide range of businesses, live event venues, and even sensitive utility and offshore projects ahead of impending hazardous weather. So hello, Jason, welcome. Thank you so much, Katie, for the warm introduction. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. And I would also like to welcome Sarah Prattley. Sarah is the Vice President of Global Intelligence at Alert Media, and she leads a team of experienced analysts to monitor emerging threats and incidents worldwide. And prior to that, Sarah was the Vice President of National News for CNN's Domestic News Gathering Unit. And she led the network's coverage of just a ton of major events, including the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting, the Boston Marathon bombings, countless severe weather events, and many, many more. And during her decade there at CNN, she really uh, developed this unique ability to analyze, assess, and decipher information quickly. And so we are very lucky that she can bring that skill set to Alert Media. So hello, Sarah. Welcome. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much. And thanks, Barry and team for having us. Excited for everybody tuning in today. Wonderful. Well, I do want to quickly review today's agenda before we get started, just so we all know what to expect over the next 45 minutes or so. We are going to review the 2022 hurricane forecast, and we're going to talk about what to expect for the second half of the season. We're going to talk about some potential business impacts that hurricanes and tropical storms can sometimes bring. We're going to talk about how to prepare and protect your people and your property. And finally, we have some recommended resources for you all for um, some up-to-date hurricane activity. But before I get into any of that, I would love to go ahead and poll our attendees today. So this poll is going to give us a better understanding of your primary concerns as we do get deeper into hurricane season. So if you'll take a minute to answer the question on your screen now, which is what are your company's primary concerns for the second half of the season? And you can check all that apply here. You don't have to limit it to one. So maybe it's the property and facility damage aspect, uh, protecting your on-site employees or your remote and your dispersed employees. Maybe it's that communication piece, right? That's always a big question for folks as we get into the hurricane season. Or maybe it's business continuity, which I know all organizations are, are concerned about. So I'm going to give this just another few seconds. Please go ahead and get your answers in now. And then let's go ahead and close out this poll and share the results so we can all have a look at the answers here. Okay. Well, everything is represented, so that makes a lot of sense to me, but it looks like the protecting the on-site employees is the number one concern for our folks today. So Jason, what are your thoughts there? Is that about what you expected to see? Yeah, really no surprise. I'm really glad that we're seeing quite a bit of diversity. Each and every one of these topics is very important. And one of the often overlooked items is gonna be your post-storm continuity because a lot of these impacts can extend days and even weeks after the storm has made landfall. Absolutely. What about you, Sarah? Any surprises here? 
I think it's just really interesting to note that everything is so well represented. There's there's nothing that's really below 40%. So clearly these are things that are top of mind for everybody. And it seems like it's pretty evenly distributed as well. So definitely a lot of good topics we'll dive into today as well. Absolutely. Well, we you have come to the right place because we have speaking points on all of these for you guys. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Jason, who's going to provide a quick review of the 2022 forecast. And I know that both CSU and NOAA released prediction updates in August. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they change since those were first released this spring. So Jason, over to you. Thank you so much. So as already alluded to by Katie, we're going to begin with what the forecast had looked like before the season even started. So Colorado State, they usually are the first to issue any sort of seasonal forecast. First one of the year is usually issued around April. And you can see the forecast for this year called for 19 named storms, nine of which were likely to become hurricanes. And four of those were then expected to strengthen further into major hurricanes. And anytime we're talking about a major storm, we're usually talking about category three higher or category three or higher intensity. So just for comparison to what we can normally see, the 30 year average is usually closer to 14 named storms, seven of which becoming hurricanes in three major hurricanes. So when you factor all these numbers together, overall CSU is forecasting a season projected to be about 30, maybe 35% more active than usual. And you can see they do have a pretty good track record. If we just look at the lower left uh, hand corner um, uh, columns there, you see from 2021, before the season, they predicted 17, eight and four. We actually finished a little bit more active than normal on the total number of named storms with 21. Uh, the hurricanes and major hurricanes that were pretty close at seven and four respectively. So CSU is very reliable. They've been producing seasonal forecasts for several decades. They're often thought of as being the pioneers of seasonal forecasting. Now you can see that since we've had a bit of a slower start into June, July, and especially into August, they have lowered their numbers ever so slightly. So we're down from 19 named storms, to now 18 storms forecast through the rest of the year, eight of which that were still expected to become hurricanes with four potentially becoming major hurricanes. So this would still be a very significant hurricane season if the latest CSU forecast were to pan out. Now, if we fast forward and take a look at NOAA, you can see that their forecast is a little different. They provide more in the way of ranges, but still compared to CSU, this is very comparable. They were forecasting anywhere between 14 to 20 named storms with the latest August update. Once again, down ever so slightly from those preseason forecasts of 14 to 21 named storms, but all things considered still a well above average season. Even when you look at the number of hurricanes, again, the seasonal average is seven. They were forecasting a near average to maybe well above average season with anywhere between six to 10 hurricanes and three to five major hurricanes. So even with these August updates, the numbers were comparable to what was forecast before the season kicked into gear. As we take a look at some of the key forecast drivers, these are some of the more well-known ingredients that go into the seasonal forecast. It's really hard to just narrow it down, honestly, to three or three to five. There's really dozens of weather patterns around the world that are playing at least some sort of role in this. But some of the key drivers each and every year is going to be, well, for one, across the Atlantic, Gulf, and Caribbean, we've been within an active cycle dating all the way back to 1995. So yes, there is a lot of variability year in and year out, but really for much of the last 30 plus years, we've been in a busier state across the Atlantic Basin. And a lot of that is largely um, a component of warmer than normal sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic. 
Some of that you can make a case is related to climate change, but the Atlantic also goes through more natural cycles that can occur for 20 to 40 year periods. So we just happen to be within one of those more active cycles at this time. It very well could go on for another 10 to 20 years. So that's one of the key ingredients. Second of which though, is what we're looking at within the equatorial Pacific. You often hear on the news, what's the difference between La Nina and El Nino. And this year we're in our third consecutive year of having La Nina conditions within the Pacific. And really all that is, is you're dealing with cooler than normal water temperatures off the west coast of South America. Usually when we see those water conditions in place for several months on end, the downstream impact is lighter wind shear and more favorable conditions for Atlantic hurricane season activity and maybe a little less in the way of hurricane activity on the Pacific side. So we are still looking at those favorable waters within the Atlantic, the La Nina conditions that are in place across the Eastern Pacific, and we're also seeing at least a little bit of in the, in the way of weaker wind shear across the Atlantic Gulf and Caribbean. Now, the conditions honestly have not been quite as favorable as once was forecast. We are seeing some pesky wind shear across the Caribbean Sea and the main development region, which is that area midway between the Caribbean and the west coast of Africa. So that has placed a bit of a damper on activity so far. All things considered, though, still appears to be overall active, heading deeper into the climatological peak of the hurricane season. And we're also looking at a more enhanced West African monsoon across Western Africa. There's been some pretty notable flooding within some of these West African countries within even just the last few weeks. And we often look at this area because this is the main breeding ground for African tropical waves. These are the systems that often come off the West African coast and go on to become those long track tropical storms and hurricanes that later on threaten the Caribbean Sea and the US Eastern Seaboard. So as we advance into the next slide, you know, so far I've listed up to this point, all these favorable conditions. So you may be asking then what could be the reason why we're not seeing one storm, one hurricane after another. And this is a really good snapshot of the overall Atlantic conditions that we saw during the middle of August. And keep in mind, once you get into mid to late August, that's when we start to slow upward on the trajectory of historical hurricane activity within the Caribbean and in, in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but this is a different satellite image compared to what you may use, what you may be used to. Um, this kind of showcases Saharan dust or dry air. And basically what you can think of is that there's always persistent northeasterly trade winds across the central and eastern Atlantic. This is nothing new. Um, this is a semi-permanent feature. It's there every single season. But there are some seasons on occasion in which these northeast winds are a little bit stronger uh, than most years. And the uh, overall impact of this is that you get more Saharan dust that blows off of the Saharan desert into the deep tropics. And this can really be a death blow to these infant stages or um, very, uh, they're very easy to, to be disrupted, these tropical disturbances coming off the west coast of Africa. So for much of July and much of August, we saw well above normal Saharan dust from the African coastline extending all the way into the Caribbean Sea. And so that's the, really the biggest component as to why the season has been a bit more dull compared to what the preseason forecasts have been calling for. And these Saharan dust events are a little bit more difficult to forecast. They're not the most well-predicted events. Um, and I can also attribute a lot of this to stronger than normal high pressure that we've seen within Western Europe so far this summer. Uh, if some of you are aware, there's been some record-setting heat across Western Europe, wildfires, all of these things are connected. That same high pressure system is the same component that is driving a lot of this northeasterly wind in dry air within to the deep tropics. And that's one thing that is not being well accounted for within some of the forecast models. 
So just to kind of recap where we've been over the last two to three months, these are the storms that we've seen across the Atlantic, Gulf, and Caribbean so far this year. The first of which was Tropical Storm Alex in the lower left-hand part of the screen. It was a weak tropical storm that formed near the Yucatan Peninsula, and then it did turn toward the northeast. It did make landfall across south-central Florida. The main impact was heavy rainfall. So there, there was an upwards of five to 10 inches of rainfall. There was significant street flooding within the Miami metro, but all things considered, we got lucky with that storm. It did quickly move off toward the northeast. It did not become a hurricane. So overall impacts were minor. Second name storm was Tropical Storm Bonnie. It began as a tropical disturbance east of the Caribbean Sea. It really struggled to get its act together until it made its way closer towards Central America, including Honduras and Nicaragua. Did try to threaten that area as a hurricane, but didn't quite make it, but it still caused widespread flooding and a few deaths as a result of landslides across Central America before making a rare crossover into the Eastern Pacific. It was the first storm to do so while retaining its name since 2016. So that was a bit of a notable event. And then the third name storm of the season formed around the 4th of July weekend. That was Tropical Storm Colin. It did disrupt some weekend festivities along the Carolina coast with some isolated flooding. But all things considered, that was a short-lived storm that really didn't stick around for more than one or two days. We also had a potential tropical cyclone four in the southwest Gulf of Mexico. At one point, that storm was on the verge of becoming a tropical storm. Tropical storm warnings were issued for lower Texas, but it didn't quite fully wrap itself together until it moved inland, but it still caused extensive flooding across northeast Mexico into far southern Texas. And finally, just over the past week, we've seen activity start to pick up. We've got Hurricane Danielle, which is located well up into the far northern Atlantic. And then finally, we also have now Hurricane Earl situated just to the south and east of Bermuda. But so far, at least as we head into the first week of September, no major impacts up to this point across the mainland U.S. Jason, a bunch of people are asking, is there any way to know which areas of the U.S. will be the most impacted for the remainder of the season? So I really wish I could say with any sort of confidence where those landfalls would be, but there's really no really strong way to gauge what the pattern is going to look like more than five to 10 days in advance. Up to this point, uh, within just the last week or so, there's been a, a strong dip in the jet stream across the eastern U.S. and the western Atlantic. That's a good part of the reason why Danielle and Earl are not a direct threat to the U.S., but this pattern could easily reverse within a matter of just one to two weeks. Great, because I know a lot of our folks are interested in certain areas of the country and even some island activity, but if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying there's Unfortunately, just no way to tell right now which areas will be impacted. That's correct. Okay, gotcha. All right, moving on. So for some notable milestones so far this season, we were kind of off to an active start. As just mentioned, we did have one name storm within the first week of the official start, which begins on June 1st. We were up to our third name storm, uh, and that was really a month ahead of schedule with some of those weak early season June, early July storms. But then we had this longer than usual lull within activity. We went from July 3rd all the way through the end of August without a named storm. That was the first time that happened within the Atlantic Basin since 1941. And I really think that the dry air across the main development region was a critical factor that was a bit overlooked during that period. We also had our latest first hurricane of the season since 2013. So if it feels like it was a bit of a slow start over the last couple of months, you're absolutely correct. Um, but ever since we kind of 
switched into September, we've seen the light switch come on for Atlantic hurricane activity. We've already had two named storms. And as you're about to see, there's a couple more disturbances that we're currently monitoring out there. So this is a current picture snapshot from the National Hurricane Center. This is the five-day tropical outlook. So as I mentioned, we are still dealing with Hurricane Danielle out there across the far North Atlantic. The uh, most interesting thing about Danielle is that it's going to become post-tropical, meaning it's going to lose its tropical characteristics, but it's actually going to move towards Portugal and Spain by late Sunday into Monday. Could be looking at some flash flooding within that area. This is going to be the first storm to impact Western Europe this year. Uh, this is somewhat common. It actually does happen every couple of years, especially as we get closer toward the autumn. The remnants of these systems do eventually recurve and impact Western Europe, often with high winds and some heavy rainfall. To the south and west, again, we are dealing with Earl, but fortunately for the U.S., there is a major dip in the jet stream across the Tennessee Valley. So Earl, if anything, is, is going to potentially threaten Bermuda later on tonight. In fact, there is a hurricane watch in effect for the island. There's likely to be some wind gusts in excess of 60 to 70 miles per hour, along with heavy rainfall and squalls. So hurricane watches in, in effect and tropical storm conditions are very likely. The good news there is that the eye is going to likely miss the island as it does eventually become a major hurricane in all likelihood later on tonight into tomorrow. So this is going to be the strongest storm of the season so far. And then finally, we're dealing with now two tropical disturbances coming off the coast of Africa. The first in the row is likely to become the next named storm of the season. But with the aforementioned dip in the jet stream, these systems are both likely to also recurve out to sea. But the big takeaway here is that the main development region out there near Africa was shut down for well over a month and conditions are clearly becoming more favorable. We're seeing less in the way of dry air. So we are starting to see these systems back to back. And Jason, is there kind of a typical timeline from when something goes from a hurricane watch to a hurricane warning to when the storm hits? Yeah, that's a great question. So in this day and age, hurricane watches, we usually try to issue those or the National Hurricane Center tries to issue those about 48 hours before sustained tropical storm conditions are going to reach the coastline. Hurricane warnings, it's a pretty rapid progression. Usually those are issued within 36 hours. And for super vulnerable areas along the coastline, you can start to see local authorities issue things like voluntary, even mandatory evacuations as soon as those watches and warnings begin to be issued. Got it. So as we kind of look into the rest of the season, what can we anticipate? So on the right-hand side, this is a chart showing the climatological trend, or this is what we're used to seeing based on the last 50 plus years of data. And the biggest takeaway here is that we do see a rapid increase in August into the first week of September. Usually June and July, in all honesty, are pretty quiet. It doesn't take much to have above average activity in June and July. Um, most of those storms are pretty weak. Um, there can often be years in which you don't even see the first name storm until August. So it really doesn't take much to have a hyperactive part of the, the first half of the season compared to normal. But really, the lion's share of major hurricanes and landfalling significant hurricanes are weighted towards the middle and back half of the season. In fact, we cl climatologically peak around September 10th and 11th, but then the slope downward is much more gradual compared to the upward rise that we see in late August through September. So we can be talking about significant hurricane activity well into mid to late October. And even as we get into November, things usually start to shut down, but we could easily still see one, maybe two named storms beyond Halloween. So we still have at least a good month, maybe month and a half of significant hurricane activity. And of course, we're not completely out of the woods until the official end uh, near the end of November. But 
Even right now, uh, just based on history, once again, 65 to 70% of overall activity is still ahead of us. The first major hurricane typically doesn't even form until the month of September, and we're about to get that later on today. And we've had seven tropical storms and four hurricanes strike the U.S. after the 8th of September, just within the last two years, if you focus in on 2020 and 2021. So we've been blessed so far, but there is still plenty of season left. And Jason, once these cold fronts start in the U.S. as we're approaching fall, will that have any sort of impact on the tracks of storms? They very well can. If you get a cold front that drapes well into central or south Florida, we're a bit early for anything quite like that. But if you get a well-defined front that makes its way well offshore into the western Atlantic, oftentimes that will correspond with stronger westerly steering winds that can help deflect these storms out to sea. And actually over the next week or so, we are looking at slightly below average temperatures across the Southeast US. The pattern is ripe for at least a couple early season cold fronts to at least make their way into North central areas of places like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. So if you have interest in that area, you may actually notice within the next five to 10 days, at least some periods of lesser humidity, maybe the temperatures come down a little bit. But as I mentioned earlier in the presentation, this overall pattern can easily change beyond the next week or two. In fact, I was just looking at some of the guidance before the call, and there is at least some evidence that all the western U.S. ridging that's been causing heat waves across California, enhanced wildfire activity, to a lesser degree, at least some of that ridging could shift towards the eastern U.S. into the Atlantic provinces of Canada. And usually that pattern does support maybe a little bit more in the way of homegrown activity closer towards the Gulf, Caribbean, and western Atlantic. So we could see a few more named storms closer to the U.S., and that would also enhance the possibility of landfalls. Uh, but again, we're really talking about patterns that are beyond the next five to 10 days. Got you. And this is a slide I just decided to throw in to discuss long-term trends. So as I mentioned, we have been within an active phase of Atlantic hurricane activity since at least 1995. There has been a subtle increase in, in overall storm count over the last 30 years. Some of that can be attributed to that active Atlantic cycle that we're in. And also, we just overall have better detection systems. We have uh, more accurate sensors within Hurricane Hunter aircraft. We have more detailed high-resolution satellite images. So some of the weaker storms that we may have missed 20 and 30 years ago, those are now being accurately accounted for in this day and age. And there's also quite a lot of year-over-year -year variability. So um, there are still times in which you can see below average years, especially if you get a really strong El Nino event. We saw one of those in 1997 where there was like less than 10 named stormers for the entire year. Um, but overall, we are still seeing subtle increases in storm activity. And from a climate change perspective, if anyone has questions on that, I would say the biggest contributor has been slower storms and heavier rainfall events. And we'll discuss that a little bit further on in the briefing. That was hurricane forecasting changed in recent years. I always like to kind of bring up comparisons of prior storm tracks and some of the more recent examples. So those of you in coastal Texas or Southwest Louisiana, you may remember this storm. This was Hurricane Rita on the left-hand side of uh, the presentation here. Uh, this was a significant hurricane that eventually made landfall near the Texas-Louisiana line. But you can see the hurricane center forecast, the cone was quite extensive. And you can see that the track could have ranged anywhere from central Mexico northward towards coastal Louisiana. Compare that forecast to nowadays, you've got a much smaller cone. And really that's because the long-term average error has been slowly shrinking. We're getting better at forecasting these storms. So if you're ever placed under one of these cones from the hurricane center, 
um, there's pretty good confidence that the storm is going to pass very close to your location at this point. We've gotten much better at forecasting just within the past 10 to 20 years. So with regard to impacts, one of the biggest takeaways that I want people on this call to have is that hurricanes are not just coastal hazards. We've seen major heavy rainfall events extend well inland. Um, this is a snapshot view of some of the highest rainfall maximums regarding landfalling tropical storms. And you can see that there's been isolated events in which there's been upwards of 10 to even 20 inches of rainfall that extends well into the central plains, even the Great Lakes, and especially the Northeast US. Uh, we've also seen with climate change, more extreme rainfall events back in 2017 with Hurricane Harvey in Texas, that storm dumped over 60 inches of rainfall on its own across the Carolinas in 2018, we had Hurricane Florence that broke statewide record rainfall totals both across South Carolina and North Carolina. So heavy rainfall, significant inland rainfall flooding is a main thing that a lot of people may not necessarily think about when it comes to hurricanes. Another substantial thing here, look at Hurricane Ida. This was last year, another recent but prime example. So one can anticipate, of course, with a landfalling tropical storm or hurricane along the central Gulf Coast, it's really no shock here that you're going to see 10 to 15 inches of rainfall. But look at what happened in, in the northeast U.S. You've got a swath of five to over 10 inches of rainfall draped from Pennsylvania northeast to New York City into lower New England. In fact, New York City had its first ever flash flood emergency issue during this event. At one point in Central Park, they received over three inches of rainfall within a single hour. This was unprecedented rainfall amounts for this portion of the Northeast. And basically what happened was the remnants of Ida merged with a cold front that provided a focal area for excessive torrential rainfall. And we saw more deaths related to Ida within the Northeast than even along the South, Southeast US and the Gulf Coast, believe it or not. Wow. Another uh, factor when it comes to landfalling tropical storms and hurricanes that's often overlooked is going to be your to tornado component. Um, it's usually north and east of the center that we have several brief spin-ups. These are often difficult to detect on radar. Uh, one minute the, they're there, the next minute they weaken, then they cycle back once again and re-intensify. And we saw this certainly with Ida. In fact, in the northeast, this was one of the worst tornado outbreaks in recorded history. They were over 35 confirmed tornadoes with a good chunk of those within the Northeast. So areas like New Jersey, they had never seen tornadoes of this magnitude before, but with Ida, that was certainly a threat. So Jason, I remember, you know, Hurricane Harvey a few years ago, you know, that those folks were told, hey, you know, shelter in place because there's a tornado that sprung out of this hurricane, but then the flash flooding started. So they were told, you know, stay put, You're, there's, you know, stay put because of the, the, tornado, but also there's flooding, like how do people make heads or tails of those? Yeah, I would say the most important thing is to consider what sort of area that you're in before the storm even makes it your way. Mm -hmm. If you're within a, a storm surge prone or an inland rainfall flooding prone area, you need to make sure that you move to higher ground before the storm gets there because once the flood water is there, it's really much more difficult to evacuate and really you run out of options when things like tornado warnings are issued. So take these considerations uh, before the storm ever makes landfall. Great answer. And then also, you know, just to kind of piggyback more on what happened with Hurricane Ida is just a prime example of impacts extending well inland. So you can see here that we had well over a million power outages across Louisiana and Mississippi. That was really no surprise. It was a major hurricane when it made landfall just to the south and west of New Orleans. 
But you can see here that these impacts can extend well inland. We saw a significant, not just tornado activity, but widespread uh, heavy rainfall, high winds, and you saw hundreds of thousands of people without power from the Virginia's northward well into upstate New York. So just some key takeaways, the forecasting and the technology behind these forecasts continue to improve. Um, so if there's any questions about, should we take the cone seriously? Yes, you absolutely should. Um, the only other thing I would mention really quick about the cone is that impacts can extend well away from the cone. So it's also important to look at some of the inner workings within some of these public forecast discussions. Sometimes they can provide a little bit more clarity about impacts and where these greatest impacts are gonna be. Uh, don't just stare at that one track graphic because really that only is one part of the overall picture. Uh, hurricane season, if we look at recent years, the, the basically we have seen uh, some of these seasons start earlier than normal. Uh, we've seen storms develop as early as April and May. We've also seen storms develop even beyond the end of the hurricane season towards November, even into December and some of those winter months. So we are seeing that as an overall trend. And more importantly for everyone on this call, we are seeing stronger, longer lasting storms and especially these heavy slow moving rain events is becoming one of the bigger trends that we're seeing when it comes to potential climate change related activity. And we're seeing increasing billion dollar storm events this is because of increasing storm severity. And also you got to factor in people are moving closer to the coastline and we're having more people living in vulnerable storm related areas. And finally, people and businesses far removed from the coastline are also vulnerable and susceptible to these storms. As we saw with Ida, uh, we we're looking at impacts well into the Mid-Atlantic and even into the Northeast and also the Tennessee Valley and Great Lakes. Jason, wow, thank you so much. That was very informative. And next, we're going to move on to some potential business impacts of hurricanes and tropical storms. So Sarah, we did not forget about you. Thank you for being patient. So we're going to pass it over to you now. Patience, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jason has so much good information. I always want to give him the time. Um, well, as we talk about impacts, you know, unfortunately, when we look at the hurricane season and the tropics, there's always a number of potential impacts. One of the ones that we talk about a lot, I know there were a lot of questions about this from the audience ahead of time is remote workers, right? The landscape of where people are working and where people are working from has changed quite significantly over the past few years. Um, earlier this year, we actually conducted a survey of more than 2,000 U.S. workers to really get a better, better understanding of the perceptions um, when it comes to safety in the workplace. And some really interesting and telling takeaways, one which we've got represented here, our research found that 82% of employees feel that their employer has a responsibility to keep remote workers safe. Um, so surprising yet not surprising at the same time, we all know that a strong percentage of people have moved into these remote and hybrid situations. And often those locations are not, you know, not necessarily in the most amazing places or in the places where hurricanes are not going to impact as Jason referenced before, a lot of people are migrating towards the coastlines um, for a number of different reasons. So the data really brings into focus why it's so important for all of us as employers to really understand how to protect our community, our employee community, everybody in our ecosystem, no matter where they are, and especially when they're not necessarily near our offices and our campus facilities. Um, so again, even though your locations might not be prone to hurricane areas, a lot of your employees could be in areas. So it's really important to take stock and understand where people are. Um, you know, Jason discussed a number of different things that hurricanes can do and where the effects are um, in all areas across the country, not just coastal communities, right? The coastal locations are only part of the story and part of the impacts. 
Um, you know, we think about oil and gas and other fuels that can be in short supply after a hurricane, which of course is going to limit transportation, can cause supply chain disruptions. You know, a hurricane could also potentially disrupt an oil rig or several of them in the Gulf, um, which then further disrupts supply chains. So for these and so many other reasons, it's really important to remember that these sorts of storms often impact fuel prices. And the supply chain as well is something to really keep top of mind, especially as it's being impacted by bottlenecks resulting from the pandemic, um, as well as a number of other factors. Um, obviously, having a hurricane in any area of the United States um, can obviously impact supply chain across the entire country and beyond. And then there's also the conflict in Ukraine um, that's impacting fuel shortages, food supply, and supply chain globally. So just kind of an added impact to factor in. All of this has really been accentuated. Of course, we're thinking about hurricane but we're thinking about those major global impacts too that are already going to dovetail into the hurricane season as well. Um, the lack of electricity, right? Power outages are key when it comes to um, hurricanes and tropical storms. We see a lot of the power going out and obviously there's a number of impacts, right? People might not be able to work. Um, you know, retailers are down. One of the things we always tell people um, and always like to remind people is that when the power does go out, a lot of, um, a lot of stores, a lot of retailers have to go to those cash only scenarios. I, Probably speaking on behalf of most of us, we don't carry cash as much as a society. <laughs> um, ATMs are usually down when the power is down as well. So different things to keep in mind too, as a business, but also for your employees that might be in this area. You know, having cash on hand is really important. Um, you know, we'll obviously see industrial facilities and facilities go down. We'll see the typical loss of revenue, loss of productivity. And then there's also, um, you know, the concept and the idea and the reality that when it comes to these sorts of storms, we're always waiting for different resources to be brought in and different agencies to help and support. Obviously, FEMA comes right to mind in the United States. Um, we actually had a disaster mitigation expert who was on our podcast um, recently who actually touched on this and really brought this down to reality that after a natural disaster, aid shouldn't be expected from outside the community for about 72 hours, just with, you know, bringing different things in and targeting different areas and different needs. So really that's, you know, noting that we should all be prepared for at least three days to not have the help of those additional resources coming from, you know, local governments and federal governments. That puts a lot of pressure on the local nonprofits as well as employers and businesses like us in those areas who obviously want to support our business, but also employees in the area. And then this all just to reinforce the need to be prepared. Um, so I'll hand it back to Jason. He's got a lot of other great points on how to prepare and protect people and property. And then I can go ahead and take it back for some other um, identifying factors with monitoring storms and some communications best practices. So I'll hand it back to you, Jason. Thank you so much, Sarah. So I think in order to really best prepare for these storms, it's best to know what are some of the direct causes of death and also some of the not so known indirect causes of death. So this is one study put together by Edward Rappaport. This is the former deputy director of the National Hurricane Center. And looking back at reliable records dating all the way back to 1963, we found that in terms of direct causes of death, it's really the water from these tropical systems that cause the most, most fatalities. So you can see storm surge, at least historically, has been leading the way. If you're in a coastal storm surge prone region, you absolutely need to evacuate when authorities tell you to. But this is also quickly followed up by inland heavy rainfall and flooding. You can see um, dating all the way back to the 60s, between 20 to 30% of all hurricane related deaths are related to heavy rainfall and flooding that can extend well beyond the coastline. And there's actually been some recent studies conducted. Um, it, this is a much more uh, 
simplified sample size just between 2017 and 2021, uh, but we've seen these statistics change quite a bit just recently. The number of storm surge related deaths are beginning to drop, and we think that a lot of that is because the Hurricane Center has issued new products within the last two years. They're called storm surge watches and warnings. There's been more emphasis placed on the storm surge threat, but to the contrary, heavy rainfall related deaths are surging. And a lot of this is related to those high impact extreme rainfall episodes like the Harveys, like the Florences, like Hurricane Ida in the Northeast that I was referencing earlier in the briefing. These are causing more direct deaths than we've seen in prior decades. And so this is a major component of landfalling hurricanes. And oftentimes when we're thinking about these storms, we think about these large scale wind storms and that is justifiably the case, but compared to water, the damaging winds only make up a small number of overall fatalities. So let's go ahead and also take a closer look at indirect causes of death. Believe it or not, over the past four years, it has been indirect storm fatalities that have caused more deaths than the storms wow. themselves. And a lot of this, when you think about it, we're seeing elderly people or people that are more vulnerable having to get into their vehicles, possibly look at evacuating for six to 12 plus hours on the highway just to get to shelter. So there's greater things like cardiovascular incidents, there's more uh, vehicular accidents. You can think about the mass amount of transportation away from these vulnerable areas when mandatory evacuations are issued. And then there's also the long-term power problems that Sarah was just speaking of. You can have areas that are without power for days, weeks, and in extreme cases, sometimes even months. You've got people that are operating uh, generators. They may not be used to operating this machinery. It could be the first time that they've ever set one up. And we've seen this time and time again after every major hurricane, there's at least a handful usually of carbon monoxide related poisoning deaths. And that's something that we're really trying to focus in on over these last few years, uh, because these, these are deaths that don't need to happen. These are all things that can be accounted for well before the storm, just with a little bit more education and awareness. And then finally, things like uh, electrocution from down power lines, uh, people doing tree work after a tree falls on their business or property. These are all things that are really adding up when it comes to these indirect causes of death. So finally, how is the, what is the best way to prepare and protect your people? The number one, you need to absolutely formulate and review your plan now. Once a storm is within the Gulf or Western Atlantic, it's really too late to devise a really uh, actionable plan. By that point, you're kind of late in the game. We've been lucky so far in that we've got these extra couple of months so far this year in which there hasn't been a major hurricane threat, but you really want to put some pen to paper here. You also want to communicate your preparedness plan to everyone within your business and really one of the best things about doing this is they can kind of help poke some holes into the uh, potential preparedness plan. What are some of the weaknesses there? Um, obviously, the more hands on deck, the more uh, thoughts and ideas are put into this. Um, you can really come up with a really actionable plan with, with all hands on deck there and conduct tabletop exercises and other training just to simulate uh, the overall plan from start to finish. And that'll help uh, to kind of steer you in the right direction. Include your employees within the discussion. We've already kind of touched on that and encourage employees to devise their own hurricane preparedness plan, because really you're only as strong as your weakest link when it comes to the preparedness game. It's one thing to have the best overall business continuity plan, but if your employees are going to be taken away by family related issues or they're not prepared on their own end to deal with the storm, they may not be readily available to assist with the business during and shortly after the storm. And how to prepare and protect your property. Again, one of, the, one, one of the main things that you wanna do well before a storm ever shows up on the horizon, 
What you may want to do here is go ahead and do a quick Google search, review your county mitigation plans. They can alert you about potential threats that are specific to your area. So for example, preparing for a hurricane can be a lot different if you're in New Orleans compared to preparing for one in Miami. There may be a levy that you need to rely on heavily to protect you from storm surge. There may be local things that you may not be aware of. Um, you, you may have customers or employees within different regions that you don't have that uh, common knowledge base about. So it's really important to know about these local areas, local threats that are unique in a lot of ways. Always for every single business location, have your roof, your exterior walls, interior walls, everything inspected by a professional well before a storm. You want to make sure that the integrity of the structure is as 100% as possible before the storm arrives, because every weakness will be attacked by these high winds, heavy rainfall events. And so you want to make sure that if there is any kind of vulnerability that we get that squared away before the storm is ever threatened. And invest in impact resistant glass for exterior doors or windows. This is especially important if you're near the coastline when you're more vulnerable to those major hurricane force winds. Uh, that could definitely save you some time and grief um, and, and a lot of money. Uh, and finally, acquire a generator or some backup power blocks. Uh, this is going to definitely help out when we're without power for an extended duration. And Sarah, why don't we go to you now to talk about identifying and monitoring storms and how folks can best tackle that? Yeah, awesome. Sounds good. And I did see there were a few questions about generators. I will just note you should never use a generator um, inside, not even in you know a garage or a basement, or even if you think there's free flowing air, you should always use a generator outside. And just as far as kind of the, the lifespan of a generator, generator or how much it's going to help you, it's really dependent on what you're trying to do with it. Um, mm -hmm. If it's only a few lights in a house and maybe a refrigerator or something like that, it's going to take far less energy than it would to, um, to help with like an entire building. So there's a lot of different options for generators. Um, I would definitely do some research based on whether you're trying to keep a business up and running or whether it's for an employee who you might just need to help out at home. Cool. Perfect. Thank you for I that. I just saw those. I figured I would tackle those. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so yes, moving on. So another way you can obviously help to keep your people, your property, your business safe um, is really by proactively monitoring and identifying these storms ahead of time. Um, Jason's obviously a wonderful resource that we have internally with he and his team. Um, you know, obviously investing in a threat intelligence solution that has, you know, a weather component to it and meteorologists on hand, they can help you better understand the impact of a storm, not only on, you know, the geographic locations where you've got your corporate office, Offices, but also where you might have remote assets and remote people that's helpful too. And with that sort of help and insight, you can clearly identify emergent threats faster, um, respond in real time with automated impacts and assessments and warnings as well. So really helping your entire ecosystem of employees and businesses. And then there's also a lot of very useful public resources. I think we had a question in there earlier about what some of yeah. the best entrusted sources mm -hmm. are. Hurricanes.gov, absolutely a number one go-to um, for our teams. You can get a lot of information, obviously, from local resources as well, but hurricanes.gov is always updated really quickly um, and really frequently when it comes to these major events. So you can really be on their website and keep refreshing hour after hour, and you're going to get some good information, and you're going to get the most updated impacts. Um, you know, if you work with a company like ours, you'll get those updated impacts through the company as well, which is great. 
And then speaking of communication, you know, that's one of the things that is obviously super critical when it comes to hurricane preparedness and response. Businesses should obviously always be prepared with a ready to send communication um, to protect their people through every stage of the hurricane, right before, during, and after. So the ability to develop develop any sort of like pre-built communication by way of templates, um, that can be really helpful in these situations to ensure that you get that information to your intended audience as fast as humanly possible. Because in all of these situations, no matter what stage of the storm you're in, being able to provide information and provide it quickly is obviously going to be really helpful for you for the people who are impacted for your businesses and offices. Um, so we like to think about the storms in a response kind of path of that before, during, and after, which you see on the screen. Um, so before the storm, you can obviously proactively warn people that the storm is approaching. Um, you can also share evacuation information, preparedness advice, some of the things that we've already talked about today, and obviously your own plans. And then it's also important to manage your employees' expectations regarding when they're going to get new information and updates from you as the business leader um, and through what channels, right? Should you be telling people to pay attention to their phones? Or are you going to send stuff through email? Um, it's definitely a great best practice during these times to provide a way for employees to also engage with you and your business leaders so that they can ask questions um, and communicate in real time. Um, during the storm, obviously, a best practice to check in on your people, right? There's all kinds of surveys and safety checks you can do, um, wellness checks for status updates to really assess their safety and their circumstance, no matter whether they're, you know, in or near an office or in their home. And then you can also use responses to divert your own resources. I know a lot of companies will put their own resources on the ground to really help. So that's obviously going to help you understand where the most needs are and how you can help support your employees and offices. And then, of course, after the storm, utilizing communication to really provide resources and aid to those who need it and need it most. Again, utilizing surveys and safety checks to figure out who in your ecosystem is able to work. Maybe you've got remote workers who don't have power, don't have internet, or maybe they've just been completely stressed out by the disaster situation and just are not in the right mental state. So helping to get a reality check from them, obviously for in-office employees, it's a great way to help people understand what the, you know, what the condition of the office or the facility is, um, you know, are, can we give an all clear at this point and tell people they can return to the office? You know, are there certain things that were impacted so you can't go to certain facilities or there's certain roadways that are blocked with debris? So a lot of different information I think employees expect to hear from their employer on the back end of these events to help them be more successful in getting back to work. Um, I know we also had a lot of really good questions going into this about the best channels to use when communicating mm -hmm. during a storm. You should definitely plan to use alternate channels and alternative channels of communication in the event of power outages. Um, if power goes out, there's obviously certain things that will or will not work. Um, and then communication through each of these phases is really key to keeping your employees safe and connected. I think most employees feel most supported and most kind of, you know, safe in these situations when they're getting a lot of information, right? That knowledge is key. Okay. I know we had a lot of audience questions. I know I think we've tackled a few within some of the slides and just, I know Katie, you've interjected mm -hmm. some, but I'll toss it back to you so we can go through some of the other ones we've gotten. Yeah, I'm going to actually, uh, well, I'll flip forward to uh, this slide now, but the next one is on communication. So quite a few people are wanting to know what is the best tool to use for this, to communicate with those employees, to monitor those threats, all of the things that you mentioned. What do you recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I think our solution is a strong one, but I think for anybody out there, I think looking for a way that you can identify what's happening, right, especially when it comes to weather and storms, it doesn't matter whether it's hurricanes or otherwise. 
So being in an ecosystem where you can actually see what's happening and quickly communicate, I think it's very important, a more streamlined kind of secure process that's going to save you time and energy. Um, and then I would also just say, like, look for the capability of two different things, being able to communicate via multiple channels, right? Some people are going to need a phone call. Some people might need a text message. Some people are going to be fine with email. And in some situation, things are going to change, right? And email is obviously a great place for lengthy information. Whereas if you're sending somebody some sort of text, obviously a hyperlink or a short message is more apt. Um, and then considering power outages and best ways to communicate then. And then I would also say making sure that you have the ability to hear back from your employees, whether it's you know a function by which you can do a survey or a safety check and they can just hit a quick button so they can tell you, yep, I'm safe, I'm good, or yep, I'm one of the people who has power out or internet out, or I had some devastation to my house, we've had to leave and move. I think those are all really important factors to consider when it comes to communication too. I totally agree. And I know with alert media, the text notifications come through when the power is out. So that can be a really good way to um, get in touch with your employees. So thank you for that, Sarah. Um, you know, we have a comment here that I just uh, would like to read. And um, he did not make it anonymous. So Ron Derrick from Whataburger, I'm calling you out. Hi, Ron. Um, he says at Whataburger, the J-1 visa students that are working in Florida are an issue for them. They all live together and they have no transportation and nowhere to go if evacuations take place. So Sarah, do you think this is one of those situations where, um, you know, that communication before, during, and after can help? Um, obviously, there are just things we can't foresee, but for this situation, anything to, to offer? Yeah, definitely. I think, Ron, I think you're proving a good point, which is information and knowledge is power. And the fact that you know that you have these employees in these locations that are susceptible to these storms, and you already know the impacts that they could be potentially, you know, impacted by and the things that could, you know, devastate them or, you know, basically inhibit them from being able to get to safety. I think that's part of it. And then obviously every business is going to be different, right? You know, can you set up some sort of way to get them to an evacuation shelter or get them some sort of transportation through other people? Obviously that'll come down to different companies, business continuity plans and disaster recovery. But I think just the, the simple mere fact that you know that you have those employees is gonna help you with those recovery plans and business continuity plans. And Sarah, one more um, question regarding communication. Do you recommend one person that is designated to handle all of these communications or is it maybe a select group of admins? What do you think there? Yeah, sure. I think for every organization, it's going to be slightly different. I would say you don't always want to rest on just one person because if they're impacted in some way by a storm and are impacted by something going on in their personal life or professionally, you always want to have some redundancy there, but you also want a lot of coordination. So if you do have a number of people with the capability of communicating to different teams in different locations, I think it's really important to just have a strong kind of sense of collaboration and whose responsibility it is to connect with who, um, which just takes a little bit of coordination that I think most companies are out towards. Absolutely. Jason, we have a question here about tsunami warnings. Um, are they typically encountered on the West Coast? Does anything ever happen in the Atlantic? And do hurricanes impact tsunami warnings at all? Yeah, unfortunately, you're talking about two different phenomena there. And okay. for those along the U.S. Eastern Seaboard, the tsunami threat is relatively low compared to what we see more so within the Pacific side from 
coastal California northward towards Alaska. And then you've got the Ring of Fire that extends all the way westward through Japan and eastern China out there across Asia Pacific. But overall, the tsunami threat is pretty low across the Gulf, Caribbean and Atlantic, at least um, uh, most of the time. <laughs> Okay, and we actually have, I'll, I'll stick with you here for this last question that we have time for, because um, it's about coastal communities. Um, have companies increased resiliency of coastal communities against hurricanes, storm surges, or floodings? Have you heard anything about that with any of your industry conversations, Jason? Well, yes, I think overall the greatest resiliency improvements have been across Southeast Louisiana. Of course, all of us are familiar with what happened during Hurricane Katrina. The levee protection system was heavily tested when Hurricane Ida made landfall just south and west of New Orleans. So preparation and what you can do before the storm, the success that they had last year is proof that inadequate preparation and good planning can mitigate a lot of these problems, even on a large scale. So Southeast Louisiana overall, even though there was significant damage west of the metro, the success in New Orleans um, cannot be discounted. I would Absolutely. say too, maybe one yeah, of the ahead. things we've seen from our customers is that on the preparedness end, people are trying to get as much advanced kind of notice out to their employees as possible, and mm -hmm. also trying to gain supplies in advance of the season and well in advance of um, any sort of system hitting them. So we've seen a lot of people who have been really proactive in getting boards ahead of time and identifying when they're going to need sandbags, because we know that Unfortunately, there are supply chain disruptions. We're always going through these things, it seems, over the past few years. So we've definitely seen a number of the businesses that we support really trying to get ahead of the game when it comes to having supplies on hand. That's a good point. Well, I do want to get to those recommended resources. I promised you all, and I know you're going to want to see those. But before we get there, I want to do one final poll with all of our attendees today. You know, you've heard from Jason, you've heard from Sarah. It's just some incredible insights and expertise today. But at Alert Media, we have just a slew of experts, safety, security, uh, business continuity, pretty much anything in terms of emergency preparedness. So if you could just let us know if you're interested in learning more about how Alert Media can help you with your hurricane preparedness and communications, or really any sort of disaster plan or communication plan that you might need help with. You can tell us yes, we will follow up with you with all the info that you need, or you can say not at this time, and of course, no hard feelings. So I will give that just a few more seconds. And then we can go ahead and close out that poll and move on to these resources I have promised. So Jason recommends these uh, resources you see here to help you stay up to date on any hurricane developments. And we are gonna send out a link to this recording. So don't feel like you have to jot down some notes really quickly on this slide. Um, but these are the things that you're gonna wanna check regularly, if not even daily during hurricane season, um, just to make sure you stay abreast of the latest information. And I also wanted to provide um, Jason and Sarah's email addresses for everyone. So if you would like to follow up with anything we didn't answer today, you can send them an email. They are also both on LinkedIn under their names if you would like to connect with them there. So at this time, I would just like to thank you both, Jason and Sarah. I really appreciate you spending your time with us today and um, for you, you know, enlightening us with all this great information. Jason, thank you. Thank you all so much.
Thanks, Sarah. Sarah. Thank you as well. Perfect. Well, with that, that concludes our presentation. And I hope you all feel a little bit more prepared for hurricane season. We really appreciate you spending this time with us today. I hope you'll join us on another Alert Media webinar. And of course, I want to thank Safety and Health for hosting us today and just for being such a wonderful partner to us. And with that, I will turn it back over to you, Barry. Well, thank you, Katie. Really appreciate all the wonderful insights you and your team shared with us today. We thank all of you out there for attending today's presentation, and we would certainly appreciate you taking some time to share your feedback via our survey. A special thank you goes out today to our fantastic presenters, Katie Gowen, Jason Moreland, and Sarah Prattley, and the entire team from our sponsor at Alert Media. This ends today's Safety and Health magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day.